today is the fifth day of our summer seven-day session, uh, 13th of January 2021, and we're continuing to read and comment on passages from Swampland Flowers, the letters and lectures of Zen Master Da Hui, translated by Tr Christopher Cleary. Uh, first passage we're going to look at is uh, entitled Abandon Them at Once. It is a great error to know you are deluded and not awaken. To cling to delusion and wait for awakening is also a big mistake. Why? You're deluded because you don't awaken. To hold to a delusion and wait for enlightenment is to be even more unaware, even more deluded. If you want to smash these two heavy barriers, please abandon them at once. It's a great error to know that you are deluded and not awaken. The first two aspects of the Eightfold Path are uh, right view and right aspiration. And we can say that, that right view, at least the start of right view, is um, realizing that uh, we're deluded, realizing that we don't actually see things as they are. That, that's a huge step just to get to there. But it's useless without going to the next step, which is right aspiration and aspiring to get out of the hole we're in, to move towards seeing things more clearly. But then he says to cling to delusion and wait for awakening is also a big mistake. To cling to delusion... One way of understanding what he's he's talking about here is um, the way that we we cling to our self identities. Uh, we we label ourselves as this or that, and uh, perhaps hold out enlightenment as some kind of panacea for our troubles, but. Uh, Seeing seeing uh, awakening uh, as some kind of thing that we we apply from the outside. Um, in his in his book um, Zen in the Age of Anxiety, uh, Tim Burkett gives an example of one of the ways in which we cling to our self identities. Uh, Tim Burkett is a, is a student of um, Suzuki Roshi's a uh, very long time ago and is now a guiding teacher at the Minnesota Zen Center. He talks about our being caught in a self-centered dream. And then he tells a story of, of uh, presumably one of his students, um, renamed for the sake of anonymity. He says he called her Alice. Alice had a beautiful daughter that she was proud of. She was very involved in her daughter's life, and she could considered herself to be a good mother. But when her daughter went to college and had a college and had a psychotic break, everything changed. Alice felt responsible. This was the early 70s, a time when many people believed that mental illness was inherited from the mother. In other words, caused by one's relationship to one's mother. This was the when sort of Freudian ideas were still very current. So now, in Alice's mind, she was a bad mother. 
To escape her guilt, she began to drink heavily. Then she went into therapy, which lasted for several years, during which time she learned that her daughter's schizophrenia had nothing to do with her. Alice became a mental health advocate because she now felt she was a good person with something meaningful to contribute. Then Alice's youngest son got kicked out of college for using drugs, and her husband left her for her best friend. Now Alice felt that she was a terrible mother, a terrible wife, and even a terrible human being. Soon thereafter, her daughter with schizophrenia gave birth to an adorable baby which they, parent, which they parented together, and Alice became a happy, fulfilled mother and grandmother. A few years later, however, her daughter went off to her meds, had paranoid delusions, and ran off with the child. Who did Alice think she was then? Like Alice, many people wander through life experiencing a series of changing roles, like actors in a succession of movies. Who are we in the midst of all these roles? Are we our ideas? Are we our thoughts, our concerns, our internal movies? Or are we the extended feelings, the moods, the existential urges that underlie the movie-making world that we live in? You can see that, that um, if we get if we see our lives like this, good mother, bad mother, good wife, bad wife, and so so forth, then again, it's like we turn something that's that's uh, rich and multi-layered into something thin, sort of one-dimensional, good, bad, and these these. Um, Ideas we have about ourselves, these these um, dramas with us at the centre, in which we we play the hero or the villain. They can really um, they can can uplift us when they're positive, but the negative ones can really really um, have such a powerful corrosive effect on our lives. He says, meditation is about seeing the multiplicity of roles we identify with and the way those roles continuously arise and vanish. If we hold them tightly, the role, lightly rather, the roles remain transparent, allowing us to see and appreciate their ever-changing nature. As Alice's story shows, we identify with certain components of our experience tie these components together and call the string of events ourself. So he sees the antidote to, to this is, to, is recognizing the self as a process. When we sit, we're, we are... Um, privy to this process. Most of the time, as we go about our daily activities, it can be fairly unconscious. But we get to see the sort of parade of our, the, uh, the stories we tell ourselves when we're sitting in Zazen. This is this is um, um, one of the ways in which we um, cling to delusion, our delusions. Um, Burkett elsewhere in in this this uh, same chapter, he he mentions some of the most common stories that he he hears as a meditation teacher. I'm not good enough to calm my mind. I'm not disciplined enough. My mind is too chaotic. My body is too tight. My emotions are too sticky. 
um, he he says that we um, we don't we seem to um, suspend our disbelief in relation to these stories we tell us ourselves. We take them to be to be factual when they're then when they're constructs. And we buy into this idea of a self even when we um, may intellectually understand that everything is flowing and that and that um, good and bad are, are dualisms created by our, our discriminating intellect. Why, why is it, why do we cling so tightly to these delusions, even when they're painful? Well, one of the things we can do is ask ourselves, what would life be like without this particular story I'm telling myself? Some, some of the stories around, around not being good enough um, may give us some relief in, in the sense that they, they in, a, in a way, can let us off the hook. If we're, if we're really hopeless, then we're not responsible for ourselves in some sense. There's no point in really trying. So they can be, they can be have this sort of unconscious um, element of playing it safe, or is it? It can be just that they're they're even though they're painful, they are familiar. They they um, help us to stay, in some sense, numbed. Uh, Burkett talk, talks about it being how we sustain the trance the trance of our, our unconsciousness. And this sort of stubbornly we, we um, resist recognizing our thoughts as thoughts. What we tell ourselves, the, the fiction of self that we, we self-create Next passage is headed up. Um, don't keep knowledge. When you study this path, before you've gained an entry, it feels endlessly difficult. When you hear the comments of the teachers of the school, it seems even harder to understand. This is because if the mind that grasps for realization and seeks rest is not removed, you are obstructed by this a mind that grasps for realization and seeks rest. By rest here, I think he means um, peace, true peace of mind. As soon as this mind stops, you finally realize that the path is neither difficult nor easy, and also that it cannot be passed on by teachers. If you want to use the mind to await enlightenment and rest, even if you study from where you stand now until Maitreya is born, it's the future Buddha is said to be born, born eons in advance of now, you still won't be able to attain enlightenment or rest. You'll be increasing your delusion and unhappiness. Master P. 
Ping Tian said, Spiritual light undimmed, the excellent advice of the ages, to enter this gate, don't keep knowledge. I think what he means here is not a very felicitous phrase, but I think he means here, don't harbour any notions. Don't have any, any ideas about anything, including enlightenment. Why, why um, if we use our mind to awaken enlightenment and rest, uh, will we never, never um, realize enlightenment? Because there is in this, in this seeking enlightenment and rest, there's a dualistic attitude. We, we—it's the self wanting to, to gain something. Another ancient worthy said, "This matter cannot be sought with mind, and cannot be attained without mind. It can't be told with words, and it can't be conveyed with silence." This is first class trailing mud and dripping water, extremely compassionate talk. Uh, trailing mud and dripping water is a way that the ancients talked about their, their teaching. Sort of self-deprecation um, in the sense that any, any words, any guidance, and this is the dilemma for, for um, teachers, is um, pouring pouring muddy water on on what is plain, in plain sight. Often, people studying the path just read past these pointers like this, without examining examining them carefully to see what the principle is. If you're a person of, with bones and sinews, as soon as you hear this mentioned, you immediately take the Diamond King's jewel sword and with one blow cut off these four roads of complications. Thus, the road of birth and death is cut off, the road of ordinary and holy is cut off, the road of calculation and thought is cut off, and the road of gain and loss of right and wrong is cut off too. Right where the person stands, she's purified and clean, naked and free, and ungraspable. Won't she be happy and content? So, uh, this image of, of cutting off comes up often in uh, Zen texts. We have um, we have Manjushri Bodhisattva on our altar, and um, he in one hand he has a sutra book, and in the other hand he has a sword, the delusion cutting sword, also said to be the sword that cuts in one. So Dahwe here invites us to to cut off these four roads of complication. The road of birth and death. We, um, by by clinging to our, our self, um, we bring birth and death into existence. The the road of ordinary and holy, imagining that there are people who are holy and other people who aren't, who are ordinary people or things. Thinking that there are special people and ordinary people. The road of calculation and thought, maneuvering that we do, Bargaining. 
What's the what's the minimum I need to do? And then the road of gain and loss of right and wrong. Of course it's it's this the the self that sees in terms of of gain and loss. And trying to trying to protect our gains and avoid loss. These these uh, four roads all um, chop up reality into chunks, obscure. whole universe as, as a whole. In, um, we could sort of sum these up in, um, under the uh, invitation that appears in the Mumon Khan commentary, Mumon's commentary to um, the first koan in the Mumon Khan, Mu. He says, cut off the mind road. Cut off the mind road. Whenever um, we see um, uh, thoughts dividing things up, just to shift there, right there, shift back to the breath. Or apply the, the koan, the question right there where the thoughts have arisen. Or if you're doing shikantaza, just to sit with it all without any aversion or clinging. Haven't you read of Master Quan Shi's first encounter with Linji in the old days? Linji, this is uh, Master Rinzai. Quan Shi, I wasn't able to find what his uh, Japanese name is. When Linji first saw him coming, he got down off his meditation bench and abruptly held him tightly to his breast. Quan Shi immediately said, I get it, I get it. Linji knew he had already at that moment penetrated, so he immediately pushed him away and had no more words to discuss with him. At such a time, how could Quan Shi think or calculate or reply? Fortunately, since ancient times there have been models like this, but people these days, because of their crude minds, don't make it their business. If from the first Quan Shi had had the least intention of waiting for enlightenment, realization or rest, don't tell me he would have been immediately enlightened when he was held fast by Master Lin Ji. No, then he would have been dragged around the world with his hands and feet bound, unable to gain either enlightenment or rest. Master Rinzai must have just seen the state of, of readiness that this Quan um, Shi was in wide open ripe empty it just took Linji's no doubt bear hug to him over into realization. Readiness is all.
Really, our, our, our job is, is simply to empty ourselves out. Or another way you could say it is by is to recognize that from the very beginning we have been ephemeral. The next passage is, is called Knowledge as a Barrier and as a Companion. You tell me that you've had faith in this path since your early years, but in later years you've been instructed by your knowledge and understanding and have never had an enlightened entry. You want to know an expedient method for fully comprehending the path day and night. Since we're being perfectly conscious, conscientious, I wouldn't presume to judge the case from outside, but a few creeping vines may be permitted. Um, now this is again creeping vines is, is like um, uh, mud and, and water. It's a way of talking about giving instructions, expedient means, explaining things, um, but understanding that they are um, they can be like weeds, get in the way. This very one seeking enlightenment and entry has been the knowledge and understanding that obstructs the path. What other knowledge is there to obstruct you? Ultimately, what is being called knowledge? Where does knowledge come from and who is being obstructed? In this one statement of yours, there are three mistakes. Saying you are obstructed by knowledge is one. Saying you are not yet enlightened and willingly being deluded is another, and going on within delusion to use mind to wait for enlightenment is another. These three mistakes are the root of birth and death. You must stop producing them for a moment, so that the mind of these errors is cut off. Only then do you realize that there is no delusion to be smashed, no enlightenment to be expected, and no knowledge that can cause obstruction. You'll be like a person drinking water, who knows for themselves whether it is cold or warm. After a long time, naturally, you won't entertain this view. My teacher, Roger Colhead, would just sometimes just say, it's not what you think. Just go to the mind that can know knowledge to see if it too can cause obstruction, to see if in the mind that can know knowledge there are so many kinds or not. Since ancient times, people with great wisdom have all taken knowledge as their companion, considered knowledge an expedient means, practiced the compassion of equanimity in knowledge, and done all the business of Buddhas in knowledge, like dragons reaching the water, like tigers taking to the mountains. They never considered this knowledge an affliction, because they thoroughly understood the origin of knowledge. Once you recognize the origin of knowledge, then this very knowledge is a field of liberation, the place to get out of birth and death. Since it's the site of liberation, the place to escape birth and death, the knower is quiescent and extinct in his own essential being. Since the knower is quiescent and extinct, the one who can know knowledge cannot but be quiescent and extinct. Enlightenment and nirvana True thusness and Buddha nature cannot but be quiescent and extinct. What else is there that can cause obstruction? Where else would you seek enlightenment and entry? So again, um, Da Hui um, plays both sides. He, he, 
he um, sh shows also how um, knowledge doesn't need to be an obstruction. It's it's this um, the way that we um, cling that creates the problems, creates the obstruction. So it is just a matter of letting go. How? How do we let go? Well, that's the wonderful thing, is that we have um, a practice. We let go every time we uh, recognize the mind is caught up in, in thoughts, and and when we when we notice that and return to the practice, that's letting go. Then our obstructions become no obstructions. Passage entitled One Suchness. To take up this great affair, you must have a determined will. If you're half believing and half in doubt, there'll be no connection. An ancient worthy said, Studying the path is like drilling for fire. You can't stop when you just get smoke. Only when sparks appear is the return home complete. Want to know where it's complete? It's in the worlds of self and the worlds of others as one suchness. It's when these, these two worlds, the worlds of self and the worlds of others, are suddenly seen as not being like that. When suddenly, suddenly things coalesce and self and other disappear. Next passage is entitled Faith. If you want to study this path, you must have settled faith, so your mind does not waver whether favourable or adverse environments are encountered. Only then do you have some direction in the path. The Buddha said, faith can forever destroy the root of affliction. Faith can focus you on the virtues of Buddhahood. Faith has no attachments to objects, far removed from all difficulties you get so there is no difficulty. He also said, faith can transcend the numerous roads of delusion and display the path of unexcelled liberation. And in Buddhism, um, the word that is used for faith, shraddha, um, maybe a little closer to confidence rather than, uh, it's certainly not blind faith. Our our faith is, is always based on uh, experience. So sometimes uh, people will question whether, whether Buddhism is a religion or not, and um, the, the importance of faith within Buddhism is, is one of the things that... Um, uh, aligns Buddhism as a religion rather than as a philosophy or a, um, a, a system of thought or a therapy.
as Sashin Yin talks about faith in relation to um, affirming faith in mind that we've been chanting in the mornings. This um, affirming faith in mind is by is attributed to Master uh, Sung San, who um, died in 606 CE. He's, the, he's considered the third ancestor of Chan. He's in our ancestral line that we chant. And he quotes the opening lines. The supreme way is not difficult if only you do not pick and choose. Or in our version, the great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose. And then he says, in these lines, uh, Sung San pl- says that the path toward Buddhahood is achievable if you put aside all doubts and you truly believe you can accomplish it. Thus, the first requirement for a practitioner is to have faith. Faith in what? Faith in one's own mind. The supreme way is the Mahayana path of a bodhisattva who defers self-liberation in order to help sentient beings. If only you do not pick and choose refers to the grave mistake of those who withhold faith in the Dharma until they can resolve all their doubts through thinking and analysis. With this kind of picking and choosing, it is very difficult to gain a genuine entry to the practice. True entry cannot be gained by intellectual understanding, but through confidence in the path and believing in one's own Buddha nature. After one engages in practice, understanding will come. So we can't have have everything lined up and everything certain. Um, rather, we can get started, and if we if we practice sincerely, then our faith will be strengthened by our experience of of the practice and of the teaching. Some intellectual understanding is important, and especially for us as Westerners who are are used to um, having some kind of understanding of something before taking it up. But it can only go so far um, because the the faith that we need to to generate, to develop, um, has to be based on on experience. While some people lack faith, others believe that having Buddha nature means one is already a Buddha. This is another grave mistake. To see your Buddha nature is to have no more uncertainty in your mind, but it is not the same as attaining Buddhahood. In the beginning, however, we must have resolute faith in our own potential to reach Buddhahood. How can we give rise to such faith? The Parinirvana Sutra, which was spoken by the Buddha before his death, clearly states that sentient beings are endowed with Buddha nature. Similarly, the Avatamska Sutra states that all sentient beings are fully endowed with the merit and virtue of a Buddha. In other words, they have Buddha nature. The Dharma that was spoken by the Buddha arose from his own experiences and awakening and it was transmitted and recorded as spoken words. It has been testified to by his immediate disciples, as well as by the lineage masters throughout the ages. They also had faith. They engaged in practice. They fully experienced the Dharma and transmitted it to us. So having faith in the Buddha's Dharma, in the teachings of the Chan masters and other enlightened beings, all point to one thing, believing that we have Buddha nature. Having this faith, we can practice Chan well. In the Agamas and the Nikayas, the collected early discourses of the Buddha, Practice is defined as consisting of four disciplines or studies, the first of which is faith. 
Faith is the foundation of the other three studies of precepts, meditation and wisdom. Without faith, one cannot truly begin to practice the so-called higher studies, but with faith they can advance stage by stage, stage, progressing on the path. Without faith, studying precepts, meditation and wisdom would be in vain. Later sutras, like the Avatamska, clearly state that faith is the foundation of the path and is the mother of virtue and merit. Resolute faith is not easy to come by, and it is also difficult to maintain. Those with sharp karmic roots can quickly give rise to faith when they encounter the Dharma. They will have confidence in the path. Having heard the teachings on enlightenment and Buddha nature, they will engage in practice. Having faith, they are diligent, steady, and do not regress. Theirs is the fruit of metrit and virtue accumulated over past lives, resulting in good karmic disposition in the current life. Others can begin with the same faith but eventually regress in confidence. They engage the practice but due to karmic obstacles they go astray. If they meet favourable conditions later they might return to practice and they can go back and forth like this. Their karmic dispositions are not so firm and not so deep. To practice to good effect, we must give rise to faith, be constantly diligent and trust in the path. When our practice is erratic, we are at best planting good karma, but not actually realizing the path. While it is normal for sentient beings to advance and regress, we should always strive to give rise to faith. One of the ways that we, we give rise to faith is by um, exposing ourselves to teaching stories and people and images that generate uh, confidence and faith. Um, and um, conversely, um, being careful about what else we generate, we um, expose ourselves to, and which, which might um, uh, generate discouragement or um, uh, despair in us. continues that it is rare to attain a human form is good reason to use this precious life to practice we can accept the idea that to hear the dharma is rare but but for some it is hard to accept that it is rare to attain human birth in the scriptures the buddha said that to obtain human form was rare and precious and in all his wisdom and omniscience the buddha surely would not deceive us one thing is certain, life is impermanent and fleeting. Gold and diamonds can be replaced, but once this life fades into the past, it cannot be replaced. Therefore, life is precious. Each moment is precious. Every breath is precious. A retreat is just a few days in our life, but it too is precious. Use it well to engage your practice and to investigate your huado. On the, on the Han, we have this inscription um, about life passing quickly by, and then end, it ends, um, wake up, wake up, don't waste a moment. How, how, to, how do we use this, this precious time we have? This, um, this can raise questions about effort.
for some people when they hear um, this admonition, don't waste a moment, it can generate tension that is unhelpful. Oh, I've got to, I mustn't waste a moment. I must um, come to awakening right now. This session. The question of the for, but for for other people for somebody else that might actually be be um, something that that inspires or, or or motivates. Don't waste a moment. Oh, I must I must do my best. I must use every waking moment to delve into the into my true nature. Is this, this whole question of effort, what kind of effort to make, is uh, is a very important one. You could it's it's um, signalled as being important in that effort is one of the, the strands of the eightfold path. It's also one of the parameters. And um, the the classic way that this this right effort is talked about as being as fourfold. That um, right effort must um, give rise to wholesome dharmas. Um, keep going the wholesome dharmas in us that have already arisen, and then also not give rise to negative ones, and not uh, and get get rid of any negative habits or dharmas that have already arisen. So it's seen in terms of. What what is healthy and what isn't healthy in terms of of uh, effort? If we if we try too hard, we may end up burning out. But if we don't try hard enough, we'll never know what it is to fully uh, commit to something. This. Um, Various various koans, various stories, um, look at the whole question of of effort. Um, we've already touched on one of them when we talked earlier in Sushin about um, Joshua asking Nansen what is the way, and Nansen replies, um, "Ordinary mind is the way." Well, this the story continues, and and Joshu brings up these questions around around. Seeking an effort. So, in response to Nansen's statement, "Ordinary the mind is the way," Joshua asks, "Shall I try to seek after it?" If you try to seek after it, you go away from it," says Nansen. Joshua says, "If I don't try for it, <coughs> how can I know the way?" Nansen says. The way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. <clears throat> knowing is illusion. Not knowing is blankness. If you attain to this way of no doubt, it is as boundless as vast space. So how can there be right or wrong in the way? And at these words, Joshua was suddenly enlightened. So this is, I think, a question that comes to all of us. Is is um, should I try to seek after it? And we come, we come to practice with our seeking mind, our longing for uh, realization. And then Nansen tells us not to seek after it, or seems to be. If you try to seek after it, you go away from it. Since since ordinary mind is the way, the the danger if we try to seek after it is that um, in in setting up something that we, we something that we need to find we miss it we look right past it or as Nansen put it if you try to seek after it you go away from it
If I do not try for it, how can I know the way? Again, this knowing. Surely that's that's what we long for, to, to know the way, to know our way, to find our way. As Nansen says, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is illusion. Knowing is, is um, ideas in our mind about, about things rather than reality itself. But nor do we, can we fall into not knowing. Not knowing is blankness. That's just ignorance. If you attain to this way of no doubt, it is as boundless as vast space. So how can there be right and wrong in the way? If it's it's right under our feet, it's it's the air we breathe, it's the um, blood that courses through our brain uh, bodies. How can there be right or wrong in that? Look, just look. Listen. Taste, smell, touch. stop here and recite the four vows. The teaching you have received is offered freely. If you would like to make a donation to support the continuation of this podcast service or learn more about practice opportunities at the Auckland Zen Centre, please visit www.aucklandzen.org.nz.